So would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the 11th chapter. Matthew chapter 11. And we'll read the last three verses, verses 28, 29, and 30. And one of the things that we need to remember about the Bible is that a, a substantial part of it, a, stan- a substantial portion of the Bible, namely the Gospels, contain many of the words which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke. In other words, he's quoted. Basically, that's what we're reading about. We're reading about quotations that Christ made. Now, one of the real dangers with the printed medium, or I suppose any medium for that matter, uh, making quotations about or quoting what someone has said is that, that oftentimes they are misquoted. Or the person may be quoted accurately, but the sense of what he meant when he said it is not accurate because he is quoted out of context. The Lord Jesus Christ is quoted in the Bible. We'll probably engage ourselves at some point in time in a study of this subject, but the Bible doesn't misquote anyone. The Bible is, in and of itself, the single, acutely accurate compendium of words which anyone has said or written, and therefore what Jesus Christ says is said said accurately. We read it with a great deal of accuracy. Another thing that's important to realize, that since a substantial part of the Bible is comprised of quotes from the Lord Jesus Christ is that what we are reading here are words straight from his mouth. These are not secondhand words. These are words which he said. If you had been there when these words were said, this is exactly what you would have heard him say. Your ears would have heard these words. But we, we weren't there. We're here And so our souls hear these words, our hearts hear these words, our minds hear these words. But the impact of them, of any of the words of Christ, should be as real now as they were then. Now look, everybody who heard Jesus Christ say these words didn't receive them in the same manner. I mean... It's obvious that that if everybody listened to what he said all the time and did everything that he said, the world would have been considerably different from the way it would be considerably different from the way it is now. Would have been then too. But it is the matter of the condition of the heart, uh, of the mind. We, every one of us, before we came here tonight. I love it. Before we came here tonight, have been preconditioned. The events of today, the thoughts of our minds today, or yesterday or the day before, 
have all served to condition our minds for this evening. We, we come in here in a certain mental and emotional state, all of us, in varying degrees, of course, and in various states, but, but all of us have been conditioned to, to either reject what is heard, to believe it intellectually, but to reject it spiritually, or to assimilate it spiritually. We've all been conditioned to do something with it. So, depending upon one's own condition, one's own condition, I guess, will dictate how these words impact him. And these are very good words. It's a very good statement by Christ because, because Christ isn't just parroting a few words to make someone feel good. He's pledging himself along with these words to make the words which he says effective. So he's giving of himself. He says, Come unto me, all you that, are, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for our Lord. We thank you for his very being, for his victorious life, and for his compassion for his brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ. Uh, we thank you that he is a kind and good and benevolent and loving Savior and brother, <coughs> in that what he has promised to do for us and to do in us, he is most able to do. So I pray, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be touched by our Savior's words and by our Savior himself. I pray in his name. Amen. Rest. Uh, we all know what rest is when we put our heads on the pillow and attempt to go to sleep after being awake for 14 or 16 or 18 or more hours. We understand that kind of rest. That's a biological rest. We, we need to rest our, our, our cells so they can recharge and, and go about the business of the next day so that we can discharge them so that we can rest the next evening and recharge them again. But, but that's not the kind of rest that our Lord is speaking of here. If, if you've ever been troubled about anything, whether it be a secular, a familial, a scholastic, or a church event, if you've ever been troubled about anything at all, then you'll know what it means to experience unrest. You'll know that. You will know that because you have experienced it. Maybe even now you are experiencing it. Unrest is produced by myriad emotions, vagary of emotions. It's, it's, produced by, it's produced by uncertainty, insecurity, 
produced by disappointment, either in yourself or in someone else. It's produced by anger, wrath. Unrest is produced by all kinds of things. And if you've experienced any of those things, you'll know what unrest is because you've been in some of those things, perhaps. So when the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of coming to him, he's speaking about someone who's weighted down with a great load of unrest, turmoil, unhappiness, misery. And he is promising that if they come to him, if they flee to him, that he will take that burden from them. And he will exchange it. Uh, you don't get off scot-free. He will exchange it for another burden. A much lighter one. A much easier one. A bearable one. And here's the proposition that he gives. He says, look, you take, bring all your stuff, your, your, bring all the garbage of your life that hurts you and hinders you, robs you of, of rest. Bring it to me, and, and I'll, I'll take it from you, and I'll give you instead, I'll give you part of my burden. Now, what is the burden of Christ? What, what kind of burden can Christ place upon us in exchange for our heavy, unwieldy, misery-producing burden? The answer is simple enough. The only burden that is placed upon us is the one which our flesh would most normally resist. And that is to serve the Christ. To serve him. To, to acknowledge his lordship and acknowledge our servanthood and serve him. That's the burden. Now, in the process of our taking his light burden, his easy burden upon us, we also get to shuck off other burdens besides the burden of no rest because we are miserable. I thought of another promise that the Lord Jesus Christ gave, but while I was thinking about it, a long time ago I committed some verses to memory and I'm not even going to attempt to repeat them from memory now. But the occasion was when the Lord Jesus Christ, the infant child, was taken to the temple in Jerusalem by his parents. And there were two people at the temple who really lived there. One's name was Anna, very interesting woman. We don't, the Bible doesn't tell us much about her, but what it does tell us about her makes her a fascinating character. She was married for seven years. The scripture just simply says from the time of her virginity to the time of her widowhood, it was seven years. And she, from that time on, served in the temple of God for 84 years. 84 years a widow serving in the temple. Oh, she may have been a child bride, maybe in her early 90s or something, I don't know. But, but the point is she was, and she was one of the, these two characters who were there when the Lord Jesus Christ was brought into the temple by his parents. And the other person was a man named Simeon. He was an old man. And he'd served the Lord in the temple well, all of his life, really. 
And it says in the 25th verse of Luke, if you'd like to read along with me, uh, why don't you do that? Because if you get nothing else but the, but the sense of the character of, of these two people, uh, you'll find it fascinating. Luke, the second chapter, starting with verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Now, if I stop there, I just want to point out one thing. The key word in everything that he said was peace. Now let thy servant depart in peace. Listen, a lot of people live their entire lives, long lives, some of them, who at the end of it don't know anything about peace. And those of us who perhaps aren't quite at the end of our lives yet or maybe have a whole lot of life, at least uh, actuarially, in front of us. Uh, we don't know sometimes, oftentimes, a great deal about peace either. But the thing that, I, that interested me about Simeon was that all it took for him to realize what real peace was, and just in time, was to have a view of Jesus Christ. When he saw him, he said, now I can depart in peace. I tell you that when the Lord Jesus Christ said, I will take your heavy burden and replace it with a light one, when one recognizes that Jesus Christ is the burden bearer for him in all manners and all things, when one has a view of Jesus Christ so that Christ Jesus is focal and focused in his life, in his view. Then there's peace. The minute our focus removes from him, there is not. There isn't a person in this room or in this world, no matter how good, how wonderful, how personable, how near perfect, that if you looked at him long enough, you would be disappointed. And if your hope was in his perfection or in his kindness or in his personality or his charisma, you would be robbed of your peace because you placed your trust and your peace, get your peace in the wrong person. So, so if you focus upon Jesus Christ and keep your eyes upon him, as Simeon did when he held him in his arms, you are assured of peace.
What kind of peace? Peace I leave with you, our Lord said. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's a peace that Christ gives when one's attention is to him. That the world, nor anyone in the world, cannot give. In fact, the antithesis of Christ's peace is almost or of the peace that comes from Christ is the lack of it that comes from any of us. We can, I, how, how, can, how can you derive peace that is beyond understanding, not at the, as the world gives it? How can you derive it from me? Or, or from your best friend? Or your wife? Or your husband? They're not the source of your peace. No relative, no friend, no accomplishment can be the source of your peace. As the Lord Jesus Christ says, I give a peace that the world can't give, doesn't know how to give, doesn't have the resource to give, because it doesn't possess it. So I leave my peace, he said. Well, I talked to you last week about contentment and peace. Now, I would like you to turn finally to the book of Philippians, the fourth chapter, a very worn-out page in my Bible, and I think probably well-known to most of you. Fourth verse of the fourth chapter. I see, probably ought to just back up for a second and remind you that the Apostle Paul, whose life was a consequential, a consecutive series of peace-robbing circumstances, whose life was, if you were going to design one, was not designed to be peace-getting. Paul Paul's life was abjectly miserable in terms of, of what you and I would set as a standard for harmonious living. Paul, Paul lived a life that was confrontational. He lived a life in which he was often betrayed by those who professed to be his brothers. He lived a life where, for Christ's sake, he was given up for dead three times, beaten within an inch of death, stoned, experiencing the deprivation of hunger, sleeping under the stars or under the clouds, being alone, abandoned often, in pain often, hungry often, forsaken often. And this, this, this is the person who wrote what we're about to read. You can easily say of Paul... that he of all men that you might want to read about was a candidate for for growing old as a miserable old person. Probably is axiomatic when one can say, that one can say that 
a miserable young person will grow to be a miserable old person. So I think probably the objective of any Christian should be to avoid misery. Not miserable circumstances, you can't avoid those sometimes. Not miserable relatives because they're relatives, you can't avoid them sometimes either. But misery, that's another matter. So here's this, this man who said, uh, I, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound, I know how to be full, I know how to be hungry, I know how to suffer need, I know how to abound when I'm suffering need, I can do anything and all things in Jesus Christ who is my strength. He says in the fourth verse, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And I, I would like to just take a moment to recommend to you to learn to rejoice in Christ. It's very difficult to learn how to do it when things are wrong and bad and your heart isn't right and angry. So I would recommend to you that you learn how to rejoice in Christ at least at the beginning when things aren't quite so bad. Get in the habit of rejoicing in Christ. You know, we oftentimes, when things are good, don't rejoice in Christ either. It seems like when things are good, we don't. When things are bad, we don't. When things are bad, we come to him, but we don't rejoice in him. When things are good, we don't rejoice in him. We don't think about him. We don't thank him. We take so many things for granted, our food, our homes, our, our sustenance, our jobs, our families, our recreation our physical well-being. We take all that stuff pretty much for granted and rejoice very little in the Lord Jesus Christ when those things are about us. Well, Paul learned to rejoice. He said in the sixth verse, so be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. I am a walking testimony for how rapidly one can decline when he leaves off prayer and supplication. Supplication. You know what supplication really means? Begging is too strong a word, but pleading is not. That's what supplication is. Pleading with the great God of heaven that he would work on your behalf and for your ultimate good and for be on behalf and for the ultimate good of those whom you care about and for whom you are praying. But leave off praying, and you leave off pleading. And when you leave off, leave off pleading, then you take on a great load of pride. The kind of pride that says, I, I can do it myself. And so the apostle makes very plain that we are not to anguish over anything because in everything we can pray and we can plead. And I would rather 
have my father to plead before than to not have him and have a broad highway of life before me. Because by prayer and pleadings and by giving thanks and pleading my case before God, I shall have peace. I shall be healed. I shall be unburdened. I shall have rest. The Lord Jesus Christ said, not as the world give it, gives it, give I unto you. Because God's peace is different from the world's peace. And it's not found in anything the world gives. Not any system. Not any thought process. Not any religious system. It's found in nothing. It's not found in the absence of conflict. It's not found in feeling good. Real peace comes from knowing that our God is in control and that he is able to meet you at the point of your need and mine. And what is it you need today, tonight? Well, you and I, we need to be forgiven and to know it. We need to identify our own sins and to confess them and to repent of them and to be strengthened against them. We need to know what it is to have a quiet, peaceable spirit. If it is anger or malice, if it is bitterness or disappointment, remember, Peace comes from knowing that God is in control, knowing that our citizenship in Christ is in heaven, and that it's sure, and that our destiny is set, and that our victory over sin is absolutely certain. And since our victory over sin is certain, let's put our foot on the victorious road, move along it starting now, and put all the stuff away that has been hurting us and eating us. The fault that we can find, the accusations which we can make, and let's do what the scripture says. Bring that load to Christ. Place it upon him. And take his easy, light yoke. <laughs>